Hi everyone, this is Chris Wright again, and welcome to our final episode of our short Asia special series focusing on energy futures across Southeast Asia, known to us as fueling the Tiger Cubs. If you've been listening to our podcast up to this point, you will have noticed a few interesting things about energy reporting across Southeast Asia. And here are a few clips just to remind you. For the energy coverage in Thailand, I am not really hopeful actually, because most of the media outlets, when they report about energy issues, they really focus on the status views or views from the energy companies. So basically, it's very one-sided. In mainstream media uh, of Vietnam, coal can still be considered like a sensitive topic. You can talk about coal, of course, but like how much can you criticize coal power plants uh, is the question. Climate reporting here in Malaysia is still very limited. I know that some of the information is not often available, but I think through collaboration, uh, we can definitely cover things in a simpler way. The first step to being more aware of the energy situation in your country is by knowing how much electric companies are charging you and your family. After all this, the question is, where do we go from here? That's what we'll be examining in today's episode. And I'll be joined by Mai Hong, who has been working on this project over the last six months with a group of 10 young climate researchers from across each of these Tiger Cup countries. This is part of Climate Tracker's most ambitious media research project to date, and it's been supported, thankfully, by the Stanley Center for Peace and Security. Hey, Mai, how are you doing? Doing awesome. How are you? Good, good. You're getting ready for Christmas in Vietnam. Is that even a thing? It actually is a thing, fascinatingly enough. Um, people don't stay home here during Christmas. Like, it's not really a family reunion affair, but it's a let's go out on the streets and drink and go to shopping malls and listen to Christmas music type of deal um, because it's not a religious holiday, but it's like a let's have fun and yeah. Let's have fun together holiday. So let's just use this as an, as an excuse anyway. Um, in, in a country where obviously, you know, the idea of Christianity and, and American traditions and such maybe isn't, you know, on top of everyone's to do list, right? Uh, it's getting more on top of people's to do list. It's getting there. <laughs> All right. Well, I won't kind of jump into that landmine of uh, cultural understanding. But what I do want to jump into is this kind of research process that we've undertaken over the last six months called mm -hmm. Fueling the Tiger Cubs. And you've been leading this project. So can you just give us a bit of a recap of what this is and, and what we actually did during the whole process? Yeah, oh my God, I can't believe it's been six months already. It's been such a journey. And like you've heard before, um, it's a process that extends across five different Southeast Asian countries. So Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Um, we started off with more than 300 applicants um, all across the region. We narrowed it down to 28 um, people whom we trained for more than two weeks um, and ended up with our final list of 10 researchers. So we had Angelica and Jason from the Philippines, um, Arian and Cherika from Indonesia, Nguyen and me from Vietnam, Nadia from Malaysia, and Sipachai, Katasiri, and Warada from Thailand. Um, and some of these people you have already heard from in their previous podcasts or webinars. Um, if you've 
joined our live webinars about the series. But together, all of these researchers looked at more than 2,700 articles um, across different online news outlets, the leading online news outlets in their respective countries. And they also interviewed 99 media practitioners, the so reporters and editors in those countries, in order to get a clearer sense of how the media has been reporting on coal and renewable energy. You identified this group of researchers and journalists across Southeast Asia uh, to investigate their own media industries. And each of them was doing so in a very different way um, because each of these media environments is very different. Um, and there are different languages involved. Yeah, so was definitely. this research done only in English or did it cover some of the other languages in Southeast Asia? It actually did, um, especially for Vietnam and Thailand. I mean, the dominant media language in those countries are Thai and Vietnamese. Um, so our three researchers in Thailand and our two researchers um, in Vietnam, and also our two researchers um, in Indonesia looked at articles in Bahasa. So in those three languages, um, it was all in the predominant uh, local language. Um, you know, in Malaysia, uh, there's a lot of different languages being used in the media, like uh, Malay and Chinese and English, um, but we only had time for our researcher to look at the English newspapers, um, which do have slightly larger readership compared to the other ones. And then in the Philippines, it was English. I guess one of the elements going on in, in Malaysia would be that a lot of the publications publish across all of those languages right, as well. Right, that as well. There obviously is specific language publications, but there is a lot of kind of one publication publishes across, you know, Tamil, Chinese, uh, English, and Malay. Um, so that's really interesting that this research incorporates both English language publications and, you know, native language publications across the region. Because I think that sometimes when people talk about Southeast Asia's kind of media landscape, they often assume that the English language publications are representative of the kind of different publications in different countries. It's just such a diverse region that it's, it's kind of challenging to get a, a real scope of what the media is like unless you are only looking at one country and the kind of combination of languages there. Yeah, definitely. And I think especially for um, Thailand and Vietnam and also maybe in Indonesia as well, if you look at the English publications, you're really only looking at the stuff that's written by expats most of the time. Um, the language that local reporters write in is the local language. Um, so in order to get the most representative picture in those countries, we felt it was very important to have um, journalists who and researchers who could sample articles in the local language, have interviews with the journalists in local language, um, and then rewrite and repackage everything in English as well as the local language. And once we kind of collected all this data and analyzed it, did you go through a process of involving outsiders to kind of externally review what you had come up with? Yeah, we actually did. Um, so for us, it was very important that our research didn't just live in a silo, right? Um, we wanted to hear what other people thought of the findings. Um, you know, were they surprising or were they stuff that people already knew about before? And, you know, what um, others thought would be the best ways to move forward with those findings across the region. So we organized a series of four webinars, which I alluded to a little bit earlier, um, three of which were national 
internationally based. Um, so we had one for Philippines, um, one for Indonesia, and one for Vietnam. If we had time, we would have done um, one for Malaysia and Thailand as well. But unfortunately, we did not. So we had another webinar that was um, the biggest event and recapped all of the research um, in a regional um, consultation, if um, I can use that word, because um, we did invite a lot of <laughs> stakeholders um, from the media, as well as support organizations, NGOs, um, some private sector and government representatives as well. So it was definitely a very interesting process where we were able to see different people's perspectives on, you know, where do we move forward from these resources? findings. And what was the research focused on? Was it mainly focused on looking at what the problems are in energy reporting? Was it looking at kind of how to solve these problems? Uh, and how did you kind of approach the whole aim of, of the research and what we do about it? Yeah, I mean, definitely we didn't want to go in with the mindset that, oh my God, there are so many problems because that would be, you know, a biased way of posing the question. We really first just wanted to get as accurate of a snapshot as possible um, of, you know, what the main media narratives are in these countries and what is the process in which journalists arrived at these media narratives um, about coal and renewables. Um, so like I said before, in order to do that, we had a content analysis, um, which was more quantitative in nature. So each of our researchers coded hundreds and hundreds of articles um, and then they did a more in-depth framing analysis where they looked at the rhetoric um, in each article in order to synthesize the main narratives that were seen. And then they interviewed the journalists in order to get insight on you know, how they arrived at these narratives, what were the reporting and editorial process. Um, and I think this is where we um, looked at things a little bit more critically with the journalists, where we said, okay, like, um, what are the challenges that you yourself experience um, because as researchers we also don't want to you know assume and mean like okay this is a problem that's a problem like what do you have to say about that right we wanted the um, generation of these and synthesis of these challenges to come from the journalists um, whom we presented uh, some of the quantitative data to and then they fed back um, to us what challenges they themselves experienced all right and in terms of you know, working past the challenges and looking to solutions, how did you try to think about what solutions might be relevant? Again, we had that consultation process, right? And um, once we started synthesizing the key challenges across each country as well as across the region. Um, it was really amazing actually how um, the researchers as well as um, the journalists and the other stakeholders who attended these webinars and consultation opportunities um, really brought up wonderful ideas of how we can go about addressing those challenges. Um, these ideas range from anything like online websites um, in order to synthesize um, the sources and uh experts available for interview on these topics um, to more, I guess, wide ranging um, opportunities like grants and reporting opportunities and trainings, um, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Great. Well, I, I like your fortune teller skills there. Yes. Uh, so you've identified a couple of challenges. How many challenges would you like to share with us today? Yeah. So today I can share three key challenges, I think. Um, we're going to publish an action plan report as well 
where you can read all about the challenges for each of the countries. Um, but since we don't have a lot of time now, I'm going to prioritize the three regional challenges um, that we've seen in our analysis. And the first one is business interests really dominate energy reporting in these countries. Um, and we see this being manifested in a lot of different ways, um, one of which is, for example, more than half of the energy articles sampled in any one of these countries were listed in the money or finance, business, or um, you know some sim- synonym uh, section of the respective newspapers. Um, and this is really important because when you list an article under this category, it means that business sources and government sources are going to um, be overrepresented in such articles. Um, and you know, all nearly all of the journalists who frequently cover energy in the countries that we research said that they are still doing so, or at least they started doing so as part of their paper's economy desk. Um, so I can quote, for example, Nietzsche from Thailand, who is an energy reporter with Krung Turakish or um, Business Thailand. This reporter said that um, she usually follows the energy ministry's announcements and follow up with the companies, whether they have reactions to or plans to work in line with state policies. Um, and then further on in Thailand, um, our researcher found that four journalists um, working for the traditional broadsheets um, actually corroborated this claim that mainstream outlets have um, at least one reporter to cover the energy ministry um, and usually they are the one who write the most energy articles um, with a very big business or ministry angle. Um, And the same thing has been seen in Vietnam with um, reporters who work closely with the Ministry of Industry and Trade, in the Philippines with the Department of Energy, um, in Malaysia with MESTEC, and then now the Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources and in Indonesia as well. So naturally, what we see from this reporting process is there's a lack of quote diversity, like I mentioned before, and business sources are overrepresented. Actually, in all the countries, 70% of energy articles quote the source exclusively. Like you don't see any other voices um, in such articles at all. It's usually a one source article with a government or business source. So effectively, you're saying that these news organizations are usually structured so that energy reporting fits in the economy section. Uh, But when you look at what that means for how the article is written, it often means that the article is written purely getting kind of ideas, background framing and quotes on any particular topic only from business and industry, which obviously in Southeast Asia, in most countries is pretty closely interwoven. I mean, in Vietnam, you know, government versus business is obviously pretty close. Especially in energy. Yeah, and even in a country like Malaysia, the, the kind of the energy utilities are, are effectively state-owned companies or they're, they're so closely linked, it's hard to see where one starts and the other ends. So effectively, you've got, by identifying these stories as business stories, you're effectively only identifying pro-government, pro-business sources as your kind of, you know, information um, points. So you're saying that that's kind of one of the biggest challenges for energy reporting. But what do you do about that if you can't necessarily kind of transform the energy uh, news reporting business model? Because obviously we can't just kind of suggest 
all media in, in Southeast Asia should fall and we should grow the new great media empire. What is your kind of practical solution for that? Yeah, so actually, um, this is where the regional consultation webinar was um, providing me with very interesting insight. Because um, during this webinar, we chatted um, with Imelda from Internews. We chatted with Sven um, from Clean Energy Wire, Tammy from Rent21, and Kitty, um, formerly with the European Climate Foundation. Um, and all of these people were really experts in the field of um, energy communications and climate communication in their respective um, geographies. And what they brought up in that panel discussion was actually um, reporting on energy from an economic perspective in and of itself is not a bad thing. That's not the key challenge that we're seeing here. The key challenge that we're seeing here, like you highlighted, Chris, um, and like a lot of these journalists also mentioned themselves, was that um, because of the current model, when they report about economy and business, they over rely on the business representatives and government sources um, and those framings at the expense of a more diverse and inclusive and contextualized picture that might still have an economic framing, but um, you know also brings in other stakeholders in that economic story as well. Um, so I think a great way to go forward with this would be we can design specific training opportunities for business journalists, for economic desk reporters who want to report on energy from a more contextualized and inclusive perspective. Um, and I think that could also be, you know, opportunities for environment and business reporters to meet up um, and collaborate even because, you know, nowadays journalists should not just be working on a silo. Um, so yeah, these are some of the opportunities that we want to facilitate moving forward. And did you talk or did any of our researchers talk with reporters who said things like they would like more kind of capacity building in, in environmental storytelling or, or kind of a greater ability to access non-government or non-business sources on a, on a faster turnaround? Um, or is this something that we just kind of are hoping will line up perfectly with their interests? Yeah, no, we actually did um, see some buy-in on that idea on the side of the reporters as well. Um, like, for example, just uh, in Malaysia, I can um, remember that three journalists from the Edge, um, the Star in the Malaysian Reserve, um, spoke um, about a lack of stakeholders. Um, they themselves wanted to interview a greater diversity of sources beyond the government um, and these big businesses. Um, but they were experiencing a lot of um, difficulties with, you know, traveling takes time and takes up funding, um, especially when you have to go to communities that are far away from um, where these newsrooms were based. Um, and this is just, you know, in Malaysia um, but, um, that I was quoting, but also we saw um, similar experiences and similar desires in other countries as well. And Malaysia, strangely enough, you know, maybe outside of Sabah and Sarawak, it probably has the easiest geography to navigate yeah. in terms of comparing it to a place like Philippines or Indonesia or, or even Vietnam in terms of kind of getting that ability to contact these, you know, grassroots advocates, for example. Um, so if that's a problem in Malaysia, you can't imagine that it's any easier anywhere else in Southeast Asia, right? Yeah, um, definitely. 
So is that also one of the challenges, that lack of citizen voices? Yeah, actually, um, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because the second key challenge that I was going to highlight is that um, local citizens' voices are really underrepresented in these countries. Um, and like you highlighted, Chris, um, it also depends a lot on the geography. Like in the Philippines research, a big theme that came up um, was that the reporters in the Manila, Metro Manila area um, for the large uh, national outlets, like, you know, we have Inquirer, um, you have Philstar, um, they really do not, uh, they have difficulty going to other places like the Mindanao region or Visayas region um, in order to get local community sources. Um, so actually, in more local outlets like Minda News, um, you had more of that representation of local voices, but in the national outlets, you don't see that as much. Um, and that is also reflected in Vietnam, for example, where um, most of the outlets that we studied were based in either Hanoi, the capital, or Ho Chi Minh City, um, two of the largest cities, um, whereas a lot of these coal projects and just energy projects in general are based um, in more rural provinces in the middle of the country or um, further um, further away from these big cities in general. Um, so yes, it's a big issue with um, local citizens' voices who have sometimes have the largest stake in these power projects are not represented in the national media discourse. Um, and just to bring in a couple of statistics here, we found that community leaders and members are quoted in less than a fifth of the articles in all of the countries that we analyzed. Um, so that is definitely something that we would want to address as well. So you've not only got kind of a pro-business starting point, but then you have just a geographical limitation if you wanted to include local citizens' voices, which means that, you know, less than 20% of stories even include a citizen's voice, let alone including one and saying that, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. So what is the solution there if, if geography is something that these countries are never going to be able to change, uh, at least on a time scale less than a couple of millennia? Um, you know, what is the real solution there outside of, you know, encouraging countries to decentralize their business interests. Some solutions that have been tried before actually and have resulted in um, some very inspirational examples is grants for journalists to apply to and you know be able to use that funding to travel to these sites. Um, like for example, in Vietnam, um, we saw an example with journalist Le Quing, who is a freelance reporter, um, but writes for Anguidoti newspaper. And she wrote a very detailed report, actually a, the most detailed report that our researcher found on coal's impacts in central and southern provinces. Um, and she spoke to our researcher about this reporting process where she first went on a media field trip that su was supported by a local NGO, Green ID. Um, but that wasn't enough for her to collect all of the local voices that she wanted. So she actually also applied and received a grant from um, EGN, Earth Journalism Network, um, in order to make three or four more reporting trips um, to the same destinations and spoke to people around current coal power plant sites or proposed coal power plant sites. Um, and that resulted in a very in-depth um, and interesting report. Um, however, the challenge with this type of grant um, is that obviously you can't fund a lot of them. Um, and in all, not in 
all countries do you have the um, you know capital or um, urban based reporters who are willing to take time off their day-to-day job in order to put in this extra work and travel um, and also in general it just takes a longer time for them to connect with local communities than local journalists might have so a potential solution that came up in our consultation process um, was actually grants for teams of journalists um, where you wouldn't be funding one individual journalist to hopefully do all of this work, um, but you would be funding a team of at least two journalists, one of whom is from um, these mainstream national outlets, which have a broader audience, um, and then one journalist um, from these communities and these local provinces who have a broader connection to um, local sources. Um, And the idea is this team of two journalists would then be able to work on the reporting together um, and bring in a diversity of voices um, in the most efficient way possible. And do you think it would be possible for those grants to be given to two different journalists from two different publications, or would they have to be in the same newsroom? Yeah, I think it's possible for the grants to be um, given to journalists from two different publications. Um, I mean, sometimes we do the traditional way of thinking about journalism, right, is um, it's a very competitive environment where um, journalists feel like they have to pump out stories um, fastest in order to beat the other rival publication. Um, But actually, I think we're starting to see a shift in the journalists mentality themselves where um, they're realizing that actually maybe it's better to take more time and work with more people in order to um, get the fullest uh, and best quality work um, that could be then credited to two different publications instead of one. Um, And actually the interesting thing we found was that in our regional consultation webinar, um, in response to the question, which of the following actions could best support journalists covering energy issues in Southeast Asia? Um, And we had a list of different options as well, but um, this option where we fund collaborations between urban and community journalists, maybe from different publications, it actually got the most upvotes from webinar attendees who were journalists as well as uh, media organization representatives and um, potential funders. So that was definitely something really interesting to see. Um, And for me, um, very uplifting as well that we're seeing this um, increased buy-in among um, the media community um, that, you know, collaboration is good. Yeah. And and it's also something that I see some of the bigger traditional Western publications now starting to do, Um, maybe not fast enough. But if you imagine that most of the great stories, if you like, about kind of Southeast Asia often get funded and supported and written by these kind of, you know, multi-month grants or or salary-based journalists from Western countries or from the stringers from these Western publications. So, you know, the Atlantic journalist or the Washington Post journalist or the Guardian journalist or the Nat Geographic journalist might get this amazing kind of opportunity to write this long investigative piece, but uh, that opportunity isn't even offered to the kind of the the national publication based journalists. So in the national news, you don't get these great stories, but in the international news, you get these great stories, but they're kind of, you know, 
that discord is really hard to shift. It sounds like that kind of collaborative opportunity could work both with, you know, this grant model, but also could work, you know, where a, a Western publication partners with a, a local news desk because they're not necessarily competing for the same readers, yeah. right? Uh, it yeah. could appear both on the local news and the international news. And you see that quite a lot. I, I remember kind of last week reading some great collaborations in Indonesia between Monga Bay and Tempo. Um, and I saw kind of last week a really good collaboration in uh, the UK that kind of collaborated across a few newsrooms. I guess the challenge here would be, you know, uniting newsrooms in different countries with all these language challenges and, and whatnot. But I think that there is a real opportunity there we just need to kind of shift that, not only the journalism mindset, I think, but also shifting the publication mindset in terms of where the funding comes from and, and, and what it should be kind of used for. And, and should it be an exclusive story for one publication or can it be kind of for multiple? I think you see in initiatives like Covering Climate Now and initiatives like the Climate Desk, there is this uh, I guess this kind of desire for these collaborative opportunities, but I don't often see that desire represented in funding as often as it is represented in, yeah, we'll, we'll publish your stories. Great. As long as we don't have to pay for it, we'll pick it up. Um, but you don't as often see that kind of, Hey, if we give you $10,000, what can we do as a collaborative story? Um, so that's an interesting point. And, and I hope we can kind of figure out ways to shift that funding model. Do you think that also that means that, there is this challenge of the general resourcing in, in like for journalists and publications in the region? Yeah, no, definitely. Resource is a big problem. Um, and we see this more, um, I, we see this more saliently with people who are trying to do innovative and critical coverage um, because you're always going to have, you know, the big ads funders um, for the mainstream outlets. And um, actually, a lot of these um, media conglomerates in Indonesia, for example, um, they the mainstream ones that don't lack resources as much, um, they get their money because they also have, um, it's like a multi-industry business where the same conglomerate like MNC or Citicorp, they also have subsidiaries in the coal sector, coal mining sector, which is um, a very big sector in Indonesia. Um, so what we're seeing that mainstream outlets are not really under-resourced um, as much because of this financing model, but then that leads to journalists not having as much room in order to do critical investigative reporting. Um, whereas the smaller and niche um, and more independent outlets and their journalists have um, more room to do this uh, type of you know, deep dive and more willingness to and passion to do that. But then those are the ones that are under-resourced um, because, you know, they don't have multi-industry businesses to get their revenue from or um, don't want to accept ads from power, uh, energy companies that go against, uh, you know, what their reporting ethics are. Um, so that's definitely the third key challenge that we saw across the region. So what can we do about that? Uh, because obviously, you know, we could say the potential solution is give independent newsrooms a million dollars. I don't know uh, how useful that type of solution is. So do we have another idea in addition to the million dollars? 
Yeah, actually, um, during the Vietnam consultation webinar, um, I heard a very interesting idea being thrown around. And um, actually, I think it was from a journalism student who said that maybe we can set up an aggregator site, um, something similar to Patreon. Um, if you've heard of that, it's usually used for content creators, um, but something similar for to Patreon, but specifically for um, energy reporters who want to do a better and more innovative job in bringing their message message across. Um, you know, I think a regional aggregator website like this um, could really do a lot in terms of bringing more visibility to these journalists as well as the smaller independent outlets um, who can then may, maybe get more of their funding um, through readers who appreciate the quality work that they are putting out. Um, or they could also get more access to potential funders as well. So that would act like the individual journalists could get support for their ongoing work or potentially could pitch a, a, an initiative or a new idea that they have and, and see if they could get kind of funded for that, which sounds really interesting, particularly because we, you know, I think we see this trend a lot in the media industry that while media organizations themselves have kind of relatively concrete business models, the journalists independently are maybe a little bit more flexible in kind of exploring new business ideas around what the media industry is. So you're effectively saying that we need to explore this alongside some of the best kind of energy reporters in the region and kind of see how we can better support them as individual journalists in a way that still benefits their publications as well. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, Maya, that sounds like we've got through all three of the key challenges and, you know, offered a few kind of solutions. I'm assuming that people can read more about this if they want to. Um, where would they read more about it? They can read more about it in the action plan report that is coming out very soon on our website. And the action plan report will encapsulate the challenges and solutions that I just highlighted now, um, those are on a regional scale, but there will also be more country-specific challenges and solutions and suggestions for how we can implement them on a roadmap from now until the end of 2021. All right. So after this kind of scope of challenges and solutions, what do you think is the number one priority for us to focus on? And, and maybe kind of how would you prioritize these different opportunities that you've just listed? Yeah, so definitely I would prioritize um, based on the things that would bring high rewards with lower costs first, um, especially also with the context of COVID-19. Um, we can't necessarily propose a multi-country reporting initiative in February that would bring journalists from Philippines to Vietnam because you know, Vietnam would just not let them in. Um, so I think the focus in the next three months should be this type of tech-based um, information hub, um, the database that would be a go-to for all journalists across the region who want to look for expert sources um, and community sources on energy. Um, because, you know, the, these reports are still being turned out. Um, journalists are still continuing their work um, as we speak. So... This would be a, the quickest fix um, to a commonly iterated problem of I don't know where to look for more diverse sources um, because, you know, the expert sources are already out there. They want to reach the journalists. Journalists want to reach them. Um, it's just 
we're lacking this comprehensive database for people to do that across the region and maybe um, to expert sources outside of the region as well um, who can provide a perspective on the energy transition. Um, so that would be my first proposal for what we can focus on in the next three months. And then separately, the next step would be the aggregator website that we just discussed, because this site would also be something that I think is relatively simple to set up, um, but benefit a great number of journalists who already have been doing great work as well, but just need more visibility um, by you know having one place where we can advertise all of their work to all audience who might be interested in reading quality stories on energy. All right. So you think that a few kind of gaps can really be filled by some sort of kind of background work in terms of that database development and and then some ability to promote the best journalists at the moment in their native languages. Even if you can't read Vietnamese or Thai, it at least gives you kind of a clear ability to support really important Thai and Vietnamese journalists on the energy issue that would allow them to get that kind of additional support to write great stories in their national media, as opposed to looking for those grants from kind of the New York Times and Washington Post and writing these great stories that just get published in the United States. Um, all right. That's, I, I think that's kind of hard to argue with, to be honest with it. It sounds like a, like you said, a pretty low cost, high reward initiative. Are you saying that those journalistic collaboration grants can't happen? Or are you saying that kind of maybe they should happen a little bit later down the track? Oh, yeah, I definitely still hope that they can still happen within the year 2021. Um, I think it's better if we, you know, provide the tech-based spaces for these journalists to connect with the audience and connect with each other first through the aggregator website. And then maybe in the middle of the year, we can start um, having grant opportunities um, for journalists to collaborate within different regions of the country. And then um, if the COVID situation allows across different countries as well. All right. That sounds pretty great to me. Um, Mai, thank you so much for this discussion. I really hope that we're able to act on these in 2021. And that's it for our episode. Thank you so much, Mai, for joining us on the last episode of our Climate Tracker Specials Asia, Fueling the Tiger Cubs. If you want to read our regional report or any of our national reports, you can check out them all on our website. The action plan is also going to be published in early January. So hopefully if you're listening to this podcast by then, you'll be able to click on it straight away. For any comments, suggestions, and feedback, you can email us at podcast at climatetracker.org. Hope you can join us again next time. We won't be talking about the Climate Tracker Asia specials anymore, but we will have more interviews with journalists from around the world. Thank you so much and see you later.